I used to hear Harry Reader tell these great jokes. And he would say, because I like good humor. And I'm kind of like, well, I like bad humor. <laughs> Those are the kind of jokes you get from me. Chapter 3, um, some, some background information just to pick you up where we are. is Chapter 3 picks up where chapter 2 look, left off. So if you'll look at the last verse of chapter 2, and let's read that, or I'll read it to you. It says this. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now, God is speaking here very bluntly about the mess that his people are in. Though God says he brought them in chapter 1 into this covenant, this relationship, into a nation as a father, they have left him. They've estranged themselves from him so that now he says, spiritually, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah, a nation that is far, far away from me. You see, they've fallen in love with the idols and the worship of the nations. Though their sin has beaten them up, it's destroyed their land, he tells us in chapter 2, they will not let go of it. They cherish it. They still yet hold on to worshiping God. And so they still hold on to their Sabbaths and their feasts and their festivals. They still want to come pray with hands in the air, according to chapter 2. And God says, yet those hands are so red with guilt before me. Now in chapter 3, God says here, he will now take away from his people all their support and their supply. Those are important words we're going to build on. And this is exactly what happens to the nation of of Judah when the Assyrians and the Babylonians invade and they conquer. Let me say it like this. God will separate you from your support and your supply when those things have become idols in your life leading you away from him. He does it because he has promised to be a good father to his people, and yet he has supplied a true support in the person and the work of Christ and his spirit dwelling in us. So let me just pray for us and... Uh, We'll read, it's such a long chapter, we'll just read it as we go this morning. So please pray with me. Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, but the word is a sword in the Spirit's hand. You tell us that the word has the ability to divide, Lord, thoughts from intention, bone from marrow, Lord. Yet that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up the word. And the word is how we grow in a knowledge and a knowing of who you are. And so I pray right now as we study your word that you would give us glimpses and knowings of who you are as God and what you've done for us and what you've supplied for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we leave here with a desire to want to worship you and in more in awe of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin says, 
A one-eyed man living amongst the blind thinks he sees pretty well. So Israel, living amongst the nations who are completely blind spiritually, thinks that they see pretty well. They don't see what God sees has happened to their hearts and their lives. Let me tell you a story. After a violent storm one time, there was a a huge, huge tree. And this tree, which is hundreds and hundreds of years old, came crashing down over a road. And the city came out to inspect the tree. They were thinking lightning must have struck it or something caused it to fall in this storm. And what they found was the tree was absolutely infested with insects. And that's what had happened. It had rotten, become rotten from the inside out of the tree. So once they looked inside, there was hardly anything left. And see, so it wasn't actually the storm, was it? It was the infestation that it caused the demise of this tree. In Isaiah 3, God's promise to Judah and Jerusalem, Judah being the southern tribe of Israel, and Jerusalem, its capital, is he is going to bring a storm that will remove all their support, the support of government and leadership. And then on the other hand, it will remove all of their supply, the supply of wealth and assets, So that Judah will become like a woman sitting on the ground, it describes, with nothing, weeping in the dirt over her loss. My friends, that's exactly what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Listen to what the scriptures describe in 2 Kings 24, 14. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. God has a design and a purpose when we suffer. I want to say this, catch this, because of our sin and idolatry. It is the same design that a farmer has in going into his fields and plowing them. Or a vine dresser has when she goes to her vines and prunes them deeply at the end of winter. Or a parent has when they discipline their children for terrible behavior. God always has a purpose of eternal love for your soul. Suffering and trials God uses as his workmen to destroy pride and idolatries. And how material things like health, beauty, money have have and begin to capture our hearts. Let me say it like this. God is far more committed to your Christ-likeness than your comfort. God is far more committed to your Christ-likeness than your comfort. He wants what is eternally best for you, not always what is pleasing for you. And often we judge something is good or evil by how it makes us feel, don't we? Right? God judges something good or bad based upon if it's advantageous for your life and for his glory. You see, we must consider that in some of our losses or trials, maybe God is fathering me. 
We often ask to be made like Christ, and maybe in the midst of our trials, that's what he's doing. And you see, if he wasn't, he wouldn't be a loving father. Now, again, I want to say I'm talking about suffering that comes particularly because of idols or sin in our life. So here's the main idea today. We've just said it, that God is more committed to my Christ-likeness than my comfort. And that's because he's a good, loving father to you and to me. Now this morning, we're going to look at Israel's loss in chapter 3. And then in two weeks, when I preach again, we're going to look at their gain in chapter 4. Now what we see here in verse 1 and verse 18, there's a, a word that he gives twice. And it's take away. He's going to take away. And first, he's going to take away their support, loss. And second, he's going to take away their supply, loss. First, point one, God removes support. Please look in your Bibles with me at verse 2 and 3. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counsel and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. Stop there. Notice first he talks about removing. These are things that are going to be taking this away. First he says military, elite soldiers, foot soldiers. And he goes on and describes captains of 50s. 50. And then he talks about the civil. No more judges, no more elders. And then the spiritual. God would come and there will be no more prophets, but also no more diviners and magicians. In other words, where Israel had looked for its support in the occult, going to magicians, God says, I'm taking that away as well. And his point is, your culture is about to radically change. Life, as you know it, is going to disappear as I remove the support. Now notice he tells us what will replace it. Look in your Bibles in verse 4 with me. And I will make boys their princess, and infants shall rule over them. So after all this leadership is taken out, and you have a leadership vacuum there, what is left are boys and infants. And he doesn't mean three-year-olds leading the country. These will be the replacements. Those who are inexperienced, incompetent, too weak to lead, these will be the people who are in authority. Now notice what the result of that will be. Verse 5, anarchy. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to their elder and despised to the honorable. Poor leadership will lead to anarchy, lawlessness, oppression. A culture with no leadership will also be one that does not care for its elderly. Right? The despised become the honorable. Those deserving the least respect becomes the ones who have the positions of respect. And that's kind of funny because sometimes that's what we see in our culture, isn't it? Now, he moves them from this list to desperate men. Look in your Bibles, verse 6, as he describes the desperation. Verse 6. For man will take hold of his brother 
in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, verse 7, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. Notice this. What qualifies this man to be a leader? You have a cloak. You have a jacket. The country will be so poor. Anyone with even a cloak, the least bit of wealth will be taken and taken hold of and pushed to lead what they call this heap of ruins or Jerusalem. In other words, the only way to get someone in a position of leadership will be by force. That's how bad the situation is. Now notice this man's response. I will not be a healer. There is no cloak. There's no bread in my house. Now, a healer is someone who binds up wounds. And he looks out at Jerusalem. He looks out at what they call a heap of a city, all the challenges, all the destructions, and he backs away and says, I have no cloak. You've got the wrong man. I have no bread. Not me. I will not be put in a position of authority. Now, why not? Verse 8. Look in your Bible in verse 8. He spells it out even more clearly. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Their speech and the people are morally bankrupt. Oh, sorry, I'm on the wrong line. Their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. He sees the city is ruined and the people are morally bankrupt, doing what God hates. And so he says, I will have none of it. I will not lead. No one wants to to lead in a sinking ship, do they? And that's exactly what we have here. Now, what about the calls? Why? Why is this happening? Verse 9. Look in your Bibles with me. Notice what God says. They brought evil upon themselves. In other words, they are reaping what they have sown. In verse 14, notice, these elders and leaders have devoured the vineyard. They've ground the face of the poor. It means they've taken hold of all the provisions of the country. Their measures are like crushing the people and grinding them in a mill until there's nothing left of powder. And so what he's saying is the leaders have been so burdensome upon the people that the people are literally heavy with that type burden. Their taxes and their laws have been so challenging that they ground them like you would grind wheat or corn so that their life is like nothing but dust or flour. And God says, I will remove your support your leadership as judgment. Good government is one of God's greatest gifts towards man. One way God judges man is to take away good leaders. A city crumbles under bad leadership. When we first arrived in Christchurch seven years ago, we went to the school where our children were going, Emmanuel Christian School, the, the cutest and best little Christian school besides Providence in the whole world. And there's some other really good Christian schools here in town as well. And all the kids are dressed in uniform. We went and we met our oldest child's teacher, sweet, young, blonde girl, and we noticed she spoke with an accent. 
a bit of an African twang. And so later that year, I had a chance just asking her, hey, tell me your story. Because you, you, you don't have a British or Kiwi accent. Where are you from? And she said that she's from Zimbabwe. That her father was a landowner, a farmer, and a veterinarian. And that her family had been there for generations and generations. And then everything changed when Mugabe became president or dictator of the country. Suddenly there was no more bread to buy. Suddenly there was no food, no, no milk to buy. Everything was gone. She said you would go in the grocery stores and literally everything would be empty. And then the culture changed to where her father began to have death threats. Leave your farm or you will die. And they began to see friends of theirs who had been on their farms for generations, the most beautiful farms you could ever imagine, farmed by your grandfather and your great-grandfather, murdered and killed in their sleep. Her father, being a very brave man, got what he could, got his family, and left. Being part of the Commonwealth, he came to New Zealand with what little he had left and started over a new life. Why did that happen? Because the government had crumbled. Government is part of God's structure of order. Now, I want to explain this. At the top of this hierarchy sits one ultimate authority over all government. It's God himself. But under him, God has established subordinate authorities to govern our world. So over the church, he's put elders for spiritual leadership, for prayer. Over the family, he's put husbands and fathers called the shepherd and lead. And over civil authority, he's put government with the primary responsibility of punishing evil and maintaining peace and protecting the good. Now the question is, what's our role as believers? I want to encourage you, don't refuse to lead because you see all the problems. We see two types of people here. First is the man whose people compel him to lead, but he sees all the problems in the city and he wants to refuse. He says, I'll have no part of this mess. Even refuting inequalities that he has. I'm not qualified. I will not lead. But on the other side, in verse 12, we see infants leading, which means those who are not called and too immature and incapable to lead. And the result there is anarchy and oppression and a key complete breakdown of society. Where does the Christian fit into that? As Christians, we must not, on one hand, fear leadership because of the problems that we see, but on the other hand, not run to it because we are hungry for authority, respect, pride, and power. When we are not ready to lead, yet sometimes those things draw us into it. Let me say it like this. It is better to be drawn into leadership, and what I mean is through prayer, God placing an internal burden upon you to lead, than to run into it. Hosea 6, 8 says, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So often God will place a burden upon a man or woman's life to lead. That's an internal calling. 
But at the same time, and that leading can be in the church or it can be in government, but at, at the same time, there will be external support of that. That's the drawing where men and women around you will see your calling and they will recognize it and they will encourage you and speak truth to you about your gifts that affirm what God's calling you to and draw you into positions of leadership. And for the believer, Hosea 6, 8, we act justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. And so sometimes we see our culture can be a ruin, and yet fearlessly we can step into leadership when God places that internal calling, and yet there's an external drawing and affirmation. Second, let's move then to from God removing the support to now God removes the supply. Look in your Bibles at verse 18. Notice, he again gives a list. This time, not of the support that he will remove, but this list is of supply. Verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away... Hang on, my writing is not good. Let me go to the scriptures there. Yep. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the ankle, anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets. Stop there. God is going to take away all the wealth and beauty. These ladies, though, they're not just going to lose their wealth and the beauty. They're going to lose their freedom as they'll be taken into slaves. Verse 24, look there with me in your Bibles. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. He's describing a slave, isn't he? Branded, wearing sackcloth, head shaved, a rope around their belt so that they can be taken away. And God's saying... Your supply of wealth is going to be taken away and slavery awaits you. Now, notice the desperation. Verse 25 and 26. Look there in your Bibles with me. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. So now instead of men desperate and fearful of leadership... Verse, like we see in verse 6, he's describing the desperation of the women in the town after everything's been taken. Your men shall fall. There will be no one there to protect the city. The women and the children, the army is gone. The men are taken away or they're killed in battle. And notice, her gates shall lament, mourn, and weep, and she shall sit on the ground. This is an absolutely sad picture. There sits a woman on the ground, under the gates. Everything is taken. Her city is in ruins. Potentially her husband has been gone, either killed or taken into slavery. And she's sitting in the dust. Now what's fascinating is we have ancient coins, Roman coins from the emperor Vespasian, and this is exactly what we see on it. And on the coin is the Latin term Judea Capta. Jerusalem captive. He's depicting 
from Isaiah 3, what he describes in the city. And there it is on an ancient Roman coin. Now, last thing, we must ask, what's the cause? Why would God take away their support and their leadership? Verse 16 and 17. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with the scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. The women are haughty, which means prideful, and they're showing their pride by the extension of their necks, looking up, never seeing what's around them, never looking at the needs of the people. There's an ancient Near East proverb that says, much money does nothing than to make the neck long. Now notice, they're tinkling with their feet. Their gold chains and ankle bracelets jingle as they walk in the market, drawing attention to them. Their rings are of gold, their bracelets, and nothing of the injustices and the corruption around bothers them. They're high, their eyes are up, their neck is lifted. They care nothing for the nation's apostasy and nothing for the problems around them. William Gennaro says, if pride is the beginning of a duty, then shame shall be at the end of it. So God's judgment is to remove support and supply from Jerusalem and Judah through taking away the leadership and the wealth. And he did that in a drastic way through the Babylonian invasion. My friends, the central problem in God's people has always been the same thing, pride. Pride is at the heart of what God hates here because at the heart of sin, it's pride. Let me read you 1 Timothy 3, 6. Talking about the qualifications of someone in office. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with the conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. Scripture teaches that Satan's first rebellion against God was because of pride and because of seat. And therefore, at the heart of rebellion against God is always the same thing. Pride and conceit that does not want to trust, does not want to submit, does not want to follow him. There's a beautiful ancient statue at a hotel in France called De Valide in Paris. And it's where Napoleon is standing there. And Napoleon has got his hand, and you've probably seen the picture on the inside of his jacket. And there's an arrogancy about his face as he's ruling Europe, of course. And there's a pride over the man, and you can almost see that he would say, I did this, I've done this, and I will do this. Now, that is in complete contrast to what we see in the humble person of Jesus Christ, quiet at the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's about to die on the cross, and he doesn't say, I did this, I will do this, and I've got this. But rather he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Pride comes when we take the stance of Napoleon instead of the stance of our Savior Christ. Now, 
Pride and humility function completely opposite in our lives. I just want to say a few words about pride and humility, and we'll finish. We'll land the plane. For a prideful heart, when we have an advantage or benefit, either some spiritual gift or experience, it must be shown off, right? Right? When the money comes, everybody has to see it. Their gold bracelets must jingle as they walk in the markets. They have to show it off, put it on display, so that others can see their superiority. And then they can obtain the praise and the honor that they long from for man. Now, pride often wants to humble people by showing them our greatness and their smallness. So where pride wants others to see greatness, all the advantages and gifts that I have that they don't, so that I might be admired, Christian humility is just the opposite. Christian humility wants people to see one thing through my life. It's not my greatness. It's the greatness of God in heaven that we want people to see. But that alone will not humble people. It just makes them feel God's judgment is upon them. They must also see and feel the beauty of God. His love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion for those who have broken his laws and are broken people deserving of his judgment. To know a God so far above me could love me so much, that's where humility comes from. The beauty of God is most seen then in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that's where humility comes from. Even though we are so separated from God in terms of our relationship, he still loves us. And he shows it by yielding himself, not just to die, but to be crucified for us. In the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is where we see the beauty of God that humbles us, that brings us to repentance and trust that God would stoop so low and be so concerned about my salvation, about my eternity, that he wants me to know him, my forgiveness, and that he would send his son to die for me, to be my substitute, so that I might know him, his glory, forever, and enjoy him in this life. Now, last thoughts. Where God's judgment upon Jerusalem took away supply and support because of their sin, God's mercy and grace supplies to you those very things through Jesus Christ. Supply and support is what the gospel gives us. God sent his son into the world to give the supply and support we so desperately need. Rusty, what do you mean? Well, we are all in need of a supply of righteousness and goodness and holiness before God. And when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, he gives me the supply, his supply of his goodness and his righteousness. So suddenly I am clothed from head to toe like a bride coming down the aisle with his whiteness. A supply of goodness and holiness that I don't have nor ever will have. And then support There's no way in my own flesh, in my own ability, I can live the way he wants me to live. I can't obey him. 
What does he do? He doesn't just give us his word as support. He gives us his Holy Spirit coming into us so that now we can, by his grace, live a life of obedience, a life of holiness, a life that follows after him. All of that is the gospel message to us. All of that comes simply by grace and through faith. A supply of holiness and righteousness and a support to live a completely changed life. Amen? Father, I thank you so much for supply and support. God, thank you that our hope is not in a government. Our hope is not in wealth. But Lord, sometimes we can begin to look to those things for our supply, our support. Those can be the things which most concern us. Lord, we can become a people who have those necks that are haughty and we want to be made known of. Our pride wants to be made much of by people sometimes. But God, we want to walk in humility, Lord, knowing that you are far above us, yet in the way we live, we want to show people the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the gospel so that people see, yes, there's a holy God, but he's come down to me. And he's given us the supply and support, the very things that I don't have, but I must have to know him. He gives it to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God, and so we just praise you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand together and we'll close by singing Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. <laughs>